Hello, kind of Christian family. Are you out staying too blessed to be stressed? Great. So before we start the show, I want to tell you about our new partner. Now, before you hit that fast forward button, uh, 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 don't do it. Listen to this. Does your Bible suffer from really small letters? Do you sometimes struggle to stay engaged with it? Do you feel guilt with everything I'm saying right now? Don't. Think about it. 2,000 years ago, you didn't have a Bible. You'd be sitting in the temple and someone would be teaching you this and you'd be enraptured. The Dwell app lets you pick from a variety of amazing voices to read you scripture with amazing background music. Honestly, it really does make the Bible a lot more immersive. Now, unfortunately, in disclaimer, they don't actually have Jesus's real voice, but the British ones are pretty good. So go try it out for free today and get 30% off when you subscribe. Go to dwellapp.io forward slash kind of Christian. That's dwellapp.io forward slash kind of Christian and get 30% off. Go there now. Might make a great gift for a fellow kind of Christianer. Just saying. All right. I hope you enjoy this show. And apologies, folks. The uh, We had, whether it's spiritual warfare or oppression or both, I don't know. We just were beset with technical difficulties on this episode. So the audio quality is not as good as I like to have it. But there's still amazing stuff in it. So please enjoy, accept my apologies, and we will see you soon. Welcome back to Kinda Christian, folks. As always, I've missed you so much. Whether you've missed me remains an enigma. Uh, but today I am very pleased and honored to present uh, someone who I've fanboyed for a while now and have enjoyed listening to over the years. And uh, I am so excited to have this conversation. Uh, he is a author, a futurist, a fashion designer. He's worked in cinema. Uh, he's and a pastor too, and I love. He's a, a total Renaissance pastor. If such a thing exists, and I know that all those accolades, though, do not compare to the pride he feels of being on this show finally. So, Mr. Irwin McManus of Mosaic Church, thank you for joining us on Kind of Christian. That's good to be with you, Ryan. Awesome. Well, I have enjoyed your books for uh, so long, and uh, I've I've just loved how you you have a penchant, you know, you, for sometimes stirring up a little controversy. And I love this. And I actually, I know you've gotten into it with a few people over the years, but I think one thing I found the most interesting of late is you had a run in with um, some sort of tennis racket or paddle in Mexico uh, that was a very consequential uh, fight. And I would love if you could fill us in on, on what happened there. Oh, there's not enough time to talk about all the injuries, especially my self-inflicted injuries throughout my life. But uh, uh, I love playing sports. I love, I mean, I'm, I'm 63, but I still love playing competitively anything I can. And we were playing paddle tennis and I just went too far to the right too fast. And I went down, my paddle hit the ground and bounced back up. And I was going down and just split my face open. Uh, but that's not even my most recent facial. I mean, I have scars across my face and stitches from all the injuries over my life. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I don't worry about it too much. I feel like scars and wrinkles are just the uh, roadmaps of your life and experiences. And I, I earned all of them. I earned every wrinkle. <laughs> I've earned every scar and part of who I am. I love that you actually I, you mentioned in the book, I think uh, you don't trust a man without scars. Um, I, I thought that was uh, that was fascinating. Was that just because, you know, it shows that uh, you're not afraid to, you know, bear what's happened to you or what was kind of the, the thinking on that? I, I loved that quote. Well, probably two sides. A person without scars probably has played life too safely mm. and has never loved anything enough to uh, risk 
everything for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think scars are, are a positive thing. Well, okay. Well, I, I know I, I, I read that and you had suffered that injury and I'm, I'm sorry to hear there was, there's more coming up there, but uh, well, uh, I guess we can do the follow-up episode. So actually I want to start, you know, um, this is, you know, on this show, we really do try and give a, a venue and a forum to ask kind of some of the, the tougher questions. And I've always appreciated that you have uh, really, you know, done a great job of just entertaining all sides of issues and really not adhering to just one way of thinking about everything. And obviously it's a huge theme of the book too, is uh, divergent thinking and not just going along the, the party line here. But uh, if you're cool with that, I'd love to just start with a few, before we get into your, your awesome new book, I, I wanted to ask a few questions that even honest personally have just been hitting close to home for me um, as I've been wrestling through um, the season. So um, I think, one thing that I, the reason I even started this show too, and uh, I appreciate your, your vulnerability in your books on this, but one question about God that has always been a, a tough one for me to sort of work out is uh, God, every, every pastor I talk to in some form says God is all about relationship. You are built to be in relationship and communion with God. And yet for a lot of folks and at various seasons, it can seem really, really difficult to find him. Uh, you know, it can be, uh, uh, you know, people say, well, I don't hear him speak to me. And then occasionally you hear people like, oh, God talks to me. And, you know, you read like David saying, oh, I'm going to go inquire of the Lord and the Lord answers him. And sometimes it feels like there was a, a quicker call and response back then than we have uh, now. But uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, is that something that, you know, you have wrestled with or members in your congregation have, have struggled with? I just I know for me, that is something that's been that historically has really been a tough one. Um. Maybe you could summarize the question again. <laughs> Basically, if God is all about relationship, why is it? Why do? Why do you think so many people feel that He is so hard to find? Um, well, you have to realize that across the world, um, the idea of relationship with God is a very um, odd and obscure thought. It's not the normative thinking, and be, because you're a person of faith and you have a relationship with Jesus, you think it's normal to think that God is about relationships. Religions would not teach that. And, and most of Christianity historically has not taught that. Hmm. And uh, I, I mean, I was born Roman Catholic and you have a relationship to the church and the church has a relationship with God. And so the, the, the concept that God is a relational God and he created us for relationship with himself is, is a, uh, a very, a very um, nuanced and uh, an almost esoteric framework. It's not the normative understanding of how God created humanity. And, and then, and, and I think this is important because you need to realize that the human experience isn't relationship with God. The human experience isn't the closeness of God. The human experience is the distance of God or the absence of God. And so when, you know, you talk to people and, and you think, oh, you know, being atheist is, is, is a difficult thing to, to become actually life experience validates more strongly that God isn't there. It's a very unusual thing to live your life as if God was present or that God is present. And, and if you're in a relationship with Jesus, you start thinking, Oh, this is normal. This is the way you're supposed to live your life. You're supposed to be thinking that you and God have this intimate communion. Uh, But if you just step back just a little bit, like I've been married nearly 40 years and, uh, Kim and I love each other profoundly, but we're not always close. Uh, in fact, my wife's in Malawi right now, and she called me from Africa, and she said, hey, are we still married? 
And I said, I said, why? She goes, well, I haven't seen you in a month. And, and I was hoping it wasn't because I didn't, I didn't call fast enough or something. And, uh, but the truth is that there, there are logistical distances, even though we're married, but there's also like emotional distances. There are times I feel very close to Kim and, and there are times she feels very close to me and there are times she feels very distant from me and times I feel very distant from her. And uh, but it doesn't change how much I love her, how much she loves me. And I think sometimes we think that intimacy with God means that every single second we're supposed to be completely aware or or experiencing his presence. And I think that's not the way we human beings are designed. And you can be very, very close to God, but not have the same emotional content of that relationship all the time. And I know that's a long kind of like journey to that, but I just think humans need to understand, Christians need to understand, followers of Jesus need to understand that um, the the dynamic of intimacy with God um, is not supposed to be a monochromatic um, monotone, that there is supposed to be dynamic to that. And that sometimes you feel much more closer to God than you do other times, even though um, you're always in a relationship with him. So, I mean, that's okay. That's that is the most novel answer I've gotten on that. But let me ask in the Old Testament and the way it, it seems, and maybe this is my modern lens looking at it, but sometimes it seems that like some of the old, you know, even the old prophets and David, it seemed like they had a very direct relationship with God. Like they could just go ask like Moses and they could just ask questions of God. Was that limited to that time span or is there just another like layer that I'm not thinking through with that? Well, I mean, when you think about that time frame, uh, if you talk about Moses, he was the singular person who had that kind of relationship with God that we know of in the whole world. And, uh, and and so if you ask, oh, wait a minute, was that just normal for then? I would say, no, it wasn't normal for then. It was mm-hmm. it was um, aberrant for then. And Moses stood outside of his time. And and it, I wish it was normal for everybody then. And and we kind of wish it was normal for everybody now. And and so I don't think it's the time that you live in. But I do think um, that that level of relationship with God is available at any time. It has been available at any time in human history and is available now. So it has nothing to do with the time that you live in, but the person that you choose to be in relationship to God. Got it. And so is when they talk about in Joel too, and just the idea, and I, again, and I, and I can move on from this one, but it just, it is interesting because uh, I, I love your nuanced answers because I think that would make sense why so many people feel like, well, God says, seek after him with all your heart, then you'll find him. And, you know, especially having me being raised a little bit in some charismatic circles, like you can, you can find some examples where it's like, oh, I feel like I got this image and I'm, you know, does this mean anything to you? And I'm like, this seems a very strange way to like different than how, you know, other people be like, oh, I'm going to go inquire of the Lord. And sometimes, and then I read Joel and there's the, you know, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. And I just didn't know if that was interpreted to mean, hey, you should have communication and communion with God, but it may not be all places, all times. Uh, and that struggle, that, that separation is normal. So um, is that, is that basically what we're saying to bring it full circle is that that separation and that kind of distance is actually the norm. And then, but it is, we are able to enter into that communion sort of. In well, a I mean, what, what you're describing right now is really almost like two different things. You're talking about okay. manifestations and intimacy and, um, you know, I don't come from 
any kind of background in terms of charismatic or Pentecostal or anything like that. I, I, I grew up irreligious. And, but um, I think what happens is we confuse uh, expressions of God's presence or manifestations of God's presence with actual intimacy and relationship with God who is present. And, um, you know, you can, ex- you can have an experience with God and still not be deeply um, intimate with God. Mm-hmm. And and I think sometimes, we're, we, you know, we're, we get confused. We think, oh, the proof of God is that, you know, is signs and wonders. The proof of God is that we prophesy or the proof of God is that we have dreams. Mm-hmm. No, actually, those things are very secondary. They're they're to me, they're distant expressions of God. And because those are things that God does in uh, as a, in making you an instrument of his activity in the world. And say, I don't think speaking, you know, in tongues or having a prophetic kind of word is proof of intimacy with God. And um, that, that that's like saying that uh, a hammer has intimacy with a carpenter when he's hitting a nail <laughs> to the ground. Intimacy with God comes more in the, the secret space where um, it's not about how God manifests himself through you to other people. It is about... Um, how you come to know God in the privacy and secrecy of your own soul, which I think is very, very different. And um, it's just, you know, it's funny because I can think of two examples, like people who are hyper physically uh, affectionate publicly as couples, I can almost always predict that their relationship is going to end. And, and, and early on, when I work, worked in much more intense um, areas, I went to a lot of funerals. And the people who were crying the loudest were the ones who were most disconnected mm-hmm. um, from the person who died. Hmm. And the, the people who were actually deeply connected to them, their sorrow was much more private and less mm-hmm. flamboyant. But there would be... Wailing and screaming and shouting and and these these massive public displays of grief. And I always knew that person was estranged from the person who died. And I think it's um, not a bad reminder to us that um, if if a person's Christianity or their faith or spirituality is mostly about how they're seen in relationship to God, to others, it's probably not a very intimate relationship. And uh, intimacy comes in the private, personal, uh, beautiful moments that you may not even want to share with anyone else because it's a relationship between you and God that's so special. Mm. No, it's, it's actually been my experience too. I appreciate that. Um, and uh, yeah, and I've, I've heard it said, yeah, that you can be, that's, that's actually probably one of the scarier things that I've, I think when I read Jesus, when he says, you can do all these amazing things, Lord, do we not do all these things? And he'll say, I didn't know you. Um, so uh, that, that, that hits true. Um, you mentioned in a recent interview, um, that, um, you have historically, um, you were, you had struggled, I think early on with prayer, you had mentioned as, uh, as sort of one of the, the disciplines. And I just found that fascinating and I appreciate how like raw and, and vulnerable that was. Uh, and as I have friends who also say that's just an area where they've just had a tough time, but also being a pastor, um, and being, you know, in love with, with Jesus. So can you talk, can you talk a little bit about that and why that was a, a struggle for you? Yeah, actually I, I, 
I'm gonna say, I, have, I don't think I've ever struggled with prayer. I, okay. I struggle with the way Christians try to define prayer as a discipline. Okay. And, um, and, and so I think there's a quite a, quite a dramatic difference in that uh, mm-hmm. because really prayer is communion with God. And, and Paul says to pray without ceasing. So really our life is supposed to be an inhaling and exhaling of prayer. Uh, the, the challenge was that, you know, coming from a Roman Catholic, you know, mild, mildly Roman Catholic background then becoming a Christian and then being taught, uh, you know, this, these are the structures of disciplines as a Christian, you know, pray one hour or do, you know, they give you plans and give you, you know, discipleship modules. And uh, I was always terrible at those. And, yes. and, and I, I, and I look back and I realize that a huge part of my struggles are trying to make me, uh, they're trying to make me a brick Mason. And, uh, when, um, when I was maybe more of a surfer and, uh, you know, life is much more adaptive and fluable and dynamic for me. And, uh, and the core of like Western Christianity, um, was more about structure and conformity. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you think of Islam and people praying five times a day, um, I think a lot of times we see structures like that as, oh, those are religious or those are spiritual. Those have a dynamic to them. Um, but if you're just paying attention and you're living in intimacy with God, there's an ongoing conversation with God. And I think um, that part of my life was um, more dynamic and I couldn't explain it to people how um, I just knew, you know, when that when God was speaking to me and felt very comfortable um, realizing that, that prayer is not a discipline, that prayer is really um, an intrinsic expression of intimacy with God. Yeah, it's like they, they wouldn't have a like if I went to Jesus, like I need to go get my quiet time and like separate myself to get like. The, that would probably be a foreign concept to them, right? The kind of modern, like Western, like way that Christianity's done with my, my coffee and my quiet time, you know, like would they, I've heard that people say that like for them, it's like, no, it was a, it was an all day thing. It was like air you breathe. It's just a, it's a thing that's like kind of in constant, constant happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons at that time I actually even said something about praying was because I, I felt like there was so much, um, pretension that was reinforcing Christianity where you had to pretend that you were, that you had it all together and you had to pretend that you had all the right uh, structures. And I'm like, um, you can't, you can't get healthy if you don't acknowledge you're sick and you cannot get well if you don't acknowledge you're not whole. And, and I think a lot of times um, in, in our faith um, there's such a demand for perfection that you end up hiding all the mess of who you are so that no one else will judge you for not being enough. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and so on that, one of the things I loved in your book, you shared um, a journey, uh, not only about your own personal health, but also uh, a friend of yours that had uh, passed away from, uh, from cancer and had a lot of, you know, confirmation was going to get healed and something we see in all, all the time and it didn't it didn't pan out uh, and it was really it hit home to me I had a, a similar uh, experience with someone I knew uh, and and it got me thinking about uh, just some of the, the scriptures uh, because clearly I, I look around and that is the the norm that we live in a world where I'm, people get sick and things happen and I I can't deny that happens all the time uh, but uh, I, I've been 
meditating and trying to chew on uh, Jesus' words about, you know, and these may not be tied, obviously, to, to healing specifically, but, you know, you're going to do the things that I do. You're going to do greater things than I do. Uh, if any two of you are in agreements, you can ask my father for anything and he'll do it. And I, you know, I, I was just chewing on that and going, okay, that is a, I mean, those are powerful words. Obviously, he doesn't, he can't mean just ask for anything at any time, no matter what, because that's, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be shallow and not even, you know, uh, can do that. But on the other hand, wow, I feel like I should see some, some of the stuff that Jesus did. I am curious, is that, um, do those verses or any of those elements, are there things we, we were really misinterpret about those? Um, I mean, John 14, 12 was probably one of the earliest passages that, um, really inspired me in my new faith. And, and so I, you know, I I spent so much of my early journey trying to understand what it means that if we believe in him, the works we sh- that he did, we shall do, and even greater works than these, because he goes to his Father in heaven. I think the, the dilemma is that we're not interested in the same things Jesus is interested in. That, um, you know, we want greater works that make us look greater. And um, rather than greater works that maybe even um, don't seem to have um, any essential value to us, um, because you, you rarely think of like compassion being miraculous or kindness or uh, generosity or, you, you know, if I said to someone, look, you're going to do greater works than Jesus. You're going to be more generous than uh, you could have ever imagined. You're going to give more money away than people will think is reasonable. They go, I, you know, I don't really I don't know if I want that kind of miracle in my life, you know, and uh, we want to raise the dead, but we don't want to, uh, you know, write the check. You know, if we said, look, you know, no, the the miracles that Jesus is talking about is that you're going to learn how to forgive 70 times seven and beyond. You're going to you're going to you're going to become an endless eternal source of forgiveness, no matter how many times you're wrong. Um, that's the miracles and, and even greater works than he did. Um, we go, well, yeah, no, that's that's not really the kind of miracle I'm talking about. And so I think some of it is that our value systems um, we, we bring our value systems outside of Jesus into the promises inside of Jesus and hope that somehow Jesus will um, align it that way. And I do believe in miracles and I've seen um, so many miracles in my life. But I also think that life is a miracle and everything that we experience and live is miraculous. I think the problem is and, you know, I have I have like friends in every kind of like stream, you know, from Hillsong to Bethel to, you know, elevation to, you know, every, every kind of expression out there of movements. And one of the things, you know, I, I've tried to like walk people through is I think the problem is that you take the exception and you make it the rule. And when you take the exception and you make it the rule, you create an unhealthy culture. And because now God is proven by the exception only if it becomes the rule. And so, uh, yes, you know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, you know, pretty significant miracle. And and yes, yeah. the father, you know, raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, but the reason those stories stand out is because, well, resurrections were rare and, uh, you know, and it wasn't the everyday normative experience. Um, yes, Jesus healed the sick, but he didn't heal all the sick. And yes, Jesus right. made um, some blind people uh, see, but he, he left most blind people blind. And, 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 you know, even at the gate called beautiful in Acts three, when, when uh, Peter and John healed the crippled man, that man at the gate called beautiful had been at the gate called beautiful for decades. So Jesus walked by him an endless number of times and never healed him. 
Yeah. And, and I think sometimes we're, we're, we're troubled with the, by the fact that God accepts the reality of human suffering. And, and, and he's not looking to create a thousand or a million or a billion um, bandages to temporarily heal our brokenness. And because that really would be insane. I mean, why, why would God expend his miraculous power uh, to heal all the temporary sicknesses in the human story when by, by transforming the essence of our being, by, by changing us from death to life, he creates every healing that will ever be needed for all of eternity. And so some of it is that we care about the short term far more than we care about the eternal. And we, we, we think that the temporary healing is far more powerful, miraculous than the, the healing that lasts uh, for all eternity. Hmm. I appreciate that. Um, you know, given the COVID situation and the pandemic and obviously, uh, you know, the church being, you know, put in a unique position to have to meet remotely and a lot of corporate worship, you know, suspended for a long time for, for a lot of folks and just kind of changing how we do things. Even in that verse two, when Jesus talks about, you know, when you gather, if, if, if multiple people are there in my name, I'm with you. Uh, and then also if, if you agree with someone else on earth, is he alluding to just some also profound just blessing and, and mystery that comes just from gathering corporately? Because I, I, I know that same verse I was wondering about, you know, uh, for those who haven't had as much community or been isolated with the pandemic, you know, is there something that we miss when we're not kind of corporately praying together and, and worshiping? Because that was in the same verse about the ask and Matthew about asking for anything. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much more than like meeting together corporately. Uh, I think it's about doing life together. Mm -hmm. And we're not designed to do life alone. And, and we're not designed to live life uh, alone. And uh, not even our, our, our spirituality. Like the, the, um, everything that's healthy uh, it happens in community. And, you know, and so, yeah, the year and a half has been tough. I mean, we're in L.A. We're, you know, between Garcetti and, and Gavin Newsom, you know, it, it's really challenging to even come back together in, in gatherings across the state. And I know I have friends in Texas and in Florida and other places. They've been meeting the whole time. I mean, it's almost as if the pandemic never hit them at all. But uh, we're still, you know, in the throes of it all. Um, and, and I think that the bigger challenge for me when I look at it is, uh, yes, some, something unique happens when we come together. It does not happen when you're alone. But but the, the shadow of that is also true. Um, really bad things happen to people when they're isolated and alone. Uh, I mean, right now, the reality is we're dealing with so many people who are struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts and anxiety and a paranoia. And I mean, yesterday I was in a meeting with someone whose wife has, has been struggling with basically paranoia for six months, paralyzed mm -hmm. by fear. And uh, outside of whether you believe in God or believe in Jesus or believe in the church, um, if you ever want to create a social experiment of whether humans are psychologically designed to do life alone or to do it in community, um, the pandemic has been that social experiment. And we have out-of-control depression, violence. Um, I mean, our, our cities are on fire with rage and anger, uh, with um, vitriol toward another, to, with violence and, and murder. And, and, and all this is really coming out of the disconnection of the human soul. Uh, when you 
live in community, it becomes virtually impossible to do harm to that community. And when you live in isolation and you see yourself in a me versus the world, everything becomes the enemy and it's easier to choose an act of violence. And it's the same way with depression and despair and anxiety. And um, yeah, so my answer is more than, oh yeah, no, there's something that happens together that doesn't happen alone. There's something that happens alone. It mm -hmm. doesn't happen when you're together. Yeah, no, it's has been. I mean, even, you know, I, I live alone and it was, you know, and I, I can't even complain because I have family local in San Diego, but it was, it was weird. Um, I remember I was sleeping way more than I ever slept and I couldn't figure what was going on. And finally my doctor said, Oh, you're grieving and your body, you don't even know it. And I was like, I'm grieving. He's like, yeah, the, the loss and the isolation. He's like, it's very common. You'll start sleeping more. Usually you're depressed and you don't even know it. And I said, well, mm -hmm. really? And he goes, yeah, just your, your body, you are, you are grieving the loss of community right now. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really surreal, you know? And mm -hmm. I know people are way tougher than I did. Um, I, uh, well, I, I guess one last question on sort of my, my kind of Christian tougher tops. Is there something, is there a mystery of God that you personally are still fascinated? I mean, I'm sure there's multiple ones when no one claims to figure God out, but is there something that's, uh, you're having a fun time wrestling with right now or an, an aspect of God that's a, a mystery that just really fascinates you? Um, I, I mean, for me, I guess every aspect of God is a mystery to me. And um, every understanding we have of God is just a shadow of the reality. And uh, anyone who thinks they really, truly, fully understand God um, is, I think, a little bit um, self-deluded. And yeah. um, I, I don't even know if my goal is to understand God. I just want to know him. And um, and so I'm pretty, you know, when I get step into eternity, I don't think I'm going to suddenly know everything about God. I think God's still going to be a mystery. And I think God is eternal. He's infinite. He's creative. He's dynamic. Um, you know, every every nuance of genius and brilliance and beauty and wonder is an expression of who he is. So I think at the end of eternity, God's still going to be a mystery to me. <laughs> No, fair enough. Fair enough. I just know, like, I, I mean, I, maybe I'm in just different. I guess I, there's things that I, I just go, man, I, I can't figure that. Out. And it's always, always wanting to understand. And actually, it's a good sub reader book because there's a, there's a part in there where you also mention um, that someone was trying to uh, convert you or really convince you of a reform position and said it's, it's one of these two. And you said, well, why does it have to be one of these two? And there's this constant. In Christian culture, particularly, it's like we have to know this. We have to figure it out. And I really appreciated you putting into words that. Why does it have to be that? Like, you know, I mean, maybe maybe your human mind can't comprehend. Maybe it's way bigger than all that. Um, so um, I, I really appreciated that. Well, we have the genius of Jesus. And uh, I really uh, one of the fun parts of hosting podcasts is you get uh, you get to read copies of books that you really enjoy. Um, I love this one. And I I want to ask you just to start off. Um, what, when did this start brewing? When did you become, fa I mean, it sounds like you've always been fascinated with genius, but when did this book sort of start coming to fruition? And you say, I'm, I'm, I want to highlight this genius of Jesus that seemingly is not really talked about in the Parthenon of genius historically, uh, like we, when we think of traditional genius. I mean, I think I've been talking about Jesus in relationship with genius for years and years. And in fact, I just um, stumbled on a message that one of my staff people sent me from a few years ago. And it really was all about um, Jesus and relationships to the, to the 
dynamic or phenomenon of genius. And so I realized that this has been brewing for a long time. Um, you know, I, I cannot hardly remember a time in my life I wasn't fascinated with human genius. I mean, it's been something that has always intrigued me. And, um, and in college, uh, studying philosophy, then um, studying psychology and at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, I, we took courses where we had to take every assessment, every indicator from the MMPI that, you know, tried to see if we were schizophrenic and everything else to, you know, every, every, every IQ test that was known to man. And, um, and, and so I, I think early on, I had a very scientific um, introduction to the whole concept of genius, but, but, but da Vinci was always an iconic person for me, uh, even in my youth. And, um, was always just struck by the phenomenon of someone who could um, translate ideas and thoughts beyond what humans thought was possible or attainable. And, um, and I think those 40 years of studying genius, it just reinforced to me how odd it was that Jesus was never on the list. And, and that's really what kind of percolated this book. Uh, it was in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, actually, I had gone to New York to meet with my publishers and, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about different book options. I'm pitching ideas. And and um, and I just happened to say, like, the fifth idea. And then I had this idea around the genius of Jesus. And and um, and then the I think the president of Penguin or Random House, she said, oh, well, no, I, I want that one. I, I didn't have anything written on that one. I had stuff written on everything else, research on everything else. I had, you know, I had progress on everything. But that one was just a concept in my head. And of course, they wanted that one. And and then I was in the middle of the the beginning of the pandemic. And um, a lot happened. One of our friends um, died and other things happened. And, and right as the pandemic was beginning and I just called the publisher and my agent said, hey, I just can't write this book, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I just asked them to kind of like, I'll give the money back. Let's just, you know, call it a day and. And um, and they did what I did not want them to do. They said, uh, no, 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 we're not going to take the money back. Um, you can take as many years as you need to write this book. Uh, we didn't wow. really, really believe in it. And so we'll wait for it. I did not want them to wait for it. I just wanted to tap out and to not write it. And I was really nervous about writing any book about Jesus. Um, I have way too much like respect in the sense of the sacred when it comes to who Jesus is. And it's part of the, one of the reasons I've never really written a book about Jesus. And, and, and so that by itself made me nervous because I felt like this book will be inadequate. It, um, it, I, at the moment I finished it, I'll know what else I should have said or what else I could have said or what mm -hmm. else needed to be said. And, and so one of the ways I had to resolve is because there's never been a book in the last 2000 years that has been written on the genius of Jesus. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of books that, that just build on themes and um, there's no other book like this one in, uh, in the world. And, and what I had to like decide is um, it'll be the first. And then a lot of better books will be written over the next decades around this concept. And I'm already hearing other people, other thinkers, Christians and non-Christians, using the language of this book and it's only been out for not even two months. And I do think it's going to change the way that we think about Jesus, talk about him and consider his significance in human history. And, and I know for 
like for Christians, that doesn't seem important because you go, wait a minute, no, Jesus is God. That's the only way people should consider him. But, um, but you know, when you're talking about a world of people who have never heard about Jesus or, or do not believe in Jesus or people who are Buddhists or Muslims or Hindus who come from different traditions, uh, talking about Jesus as a genius and his historic significance in that way is such a unique entry point to have a conversation about um, about who Jesus is. Uh, so I wrote it during the pandemic. And um, and at first it was really difficult. It was probably the first book I've written, three drafts or iterations of it, outlines and everything. And then I just threw them away and said, no, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. Uh, so it took me a while to uh, finally find the construct where I went, okay. And I think some of it was I had a, I had a kind of an epiphany moment in my back house. Um, I, I was back there working and I had this thought, how weird that my whole life centers around a person who lived 2000 years ago. And then the other thought person in my head said, that is really weird. What if you're wrong? Like, what if, you know, what if Jesus isn't God? And then your whole life is revolving around someone who isn't God. And then this other voice in my head said, well, you can deny that he's God, but you can't deny that he's changed you. And, and I thought, that's a weird thing. I can deny the cause, but I can't deny the effect. And then this other little voice and said, okay, well, then if Jesus isn't God and he's changed you, then you've been changed by the idea of Jesus. And if that's true, that's the greatest idea that has ever been given in human history. It's that idea would be genius. And, and so I wrote the first draft as if I did not believe in Jesus at all. I eliminated everything miraculous. I, rem I removed everything that I would, I, I did, I called magical. And I only kept that, which was historic. And, and I just began to go, is Jesus of Nazareth, the genius? Uh, does he qualify as one? If he is, what is his genius? And then if he is a genius, why has he never been identified on a single list of geniuses as a genius? Why, why the omission? And that's how I wrote the book. I began writing the book just from two desperate journeys in my life. Uh, one to understand human genius and, and to ask the question, is it possible for genius to be transferable? Is, is it possible for me to access genius if I lack it? Uh, because I lack it. And, and is Jesus a genius? And is what makes this genius different than everyone else's genius that it's transferable? And that's what really motivated the book. I wrote it in the pandemic, finished it up during that time. And then we couldn't get it published because uh, everything slowed down during the pandemic. So it took another year really to, to get it out into the hands of people. Wow. And I, I, the trans, the transferability of genius, it was interesting because you mentioned to you, like you can hang out with Mozart and you may not become, you might learn a thing or two, but you will not become necessarily Mozart. But with Jesus, you grow an intimacy with him and, and, and you, you can actually, you know, you have the mind of Christ. You can actually, some of this genius can be transferred, right? That's a, that's because that doesn't happen anywhere else, right? Genius is not transfer. I mean, it's right. right. That's, that's what makes Jesus' genius so unique is that, you know, you can spend your life with Picasso and never become Picasso or Mozart never become a composer or, you know, Einstein never become a physicist or mathematician. But 
But Jesus, what makes Jesus's genius so unique is that the canvas is the human spirit, that he actually expresses his genius by the way he changes human beings. And he gives us back our humanity. And that's why it was so easy to overlook his genius, because we didn't see the canvas because we were the canvas. And, yeah. and then 2000 years ago, we see the power of that genius because it's still transferable and it's still changing people's lives. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I also, um, as you can tell, obviously reading up on you and listening to, you, you gave a talk too, and it was so interesting. You were talking about even just Western uh, culture and governments that are, that have been influenced by the teachings of Jesus and how that has led to dramatically different outcomes in like, for example, in Eastern Western Germany and the splits there. And, uh, and just seeing that Jesus's genius has, you know, dramatically impacted economies and, and governments. And uh, that by that metric, I mean, he, you know, should be definitely in the, the goats, you know, greatest of all time for sure. You know? Yeah. And even when you look at <clears throat> political dynamics, you know, and uh, it seems like in America, you know, if you're on the right, you're considered to be more influenced by Christianity and you're on the left, you're considered to, you know, by Christians to be godless, you know, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, and yet ironically, <clears throat> The whole idea of like um, climate change and climate care and taking care of the environment, it, it's it, it this idea doesn't have any real merit outside of the stewardship of a divine nature that human beings are outside of creation and we're supposed to take care of it. And because if we're inside of creation only, then we're just, you know, like termites, you know, you, you, termites don't have to worry about whether a tree is historic or not, or whether, whether it's the last oak in the world, you know, and, uh, and no, no other species, you know, I mean, you know, lions don't have to worry about overeating too many antelopes because the numbers <laughs> can deteriorate and there is no other species that, that, feels a consciousness of responsibility over creation because they're trapped inside of creation. But human beings are both inside of creation and outside of creation. Hmm. And, and so we can actually see the created order and we see our own responsibility. So I actually think the whole dynamic of climate change and climate responsibility as proof of, of our divine nature. Hmm. And when you look at things like, um, dealing with social problems, dealing with the poor or social justice. I mean, the idea that the um, a government should care about it, whoever it conquered, you know, that, that Genghis Khan yeah. would be worried about the villages he pillaged or that, uh, or that Hitler would have any remorse over uh, the millions of Jews that he uh, murdered and, and, and the lands that he conquered. See, what we don't realize is that it's, it's a Christian mindset that actually says that power should be used responsibly. It's actually mm. the influence of Jesus's genius where he changed our thinking about how power should be used. And so all of these, uh, even, the, even the agendas and the issues on the left that tell us we should be responsible in these areas are influenced by the genius of Jesus. And, and, and so I, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, collision because we don't realize that, that the best of Western thinking is all reflective of Jesus's genius, not Alexander's, not Napoleon's, not yeah. Marx's, um, but Jesus's. Yeah. Wow. Let, I, this may be outside the scope of the book and, and history, but 
I've always been curious, you know, some people will say, oh, well, Jesus borrowed from this person or that person, you know, Confucius said this rule. But as far as a lot of the things that Jesus talked about, and you mentioned in the book too, just radical ways of treating your enemies, uh, you know, going, if someone forces you to do something, you actually, you know, you remove their ability to, to have power over you by going further. Are those, are some of the, I mean, do we see some of those concepts historically with other people and then they kind of all came together in Jesus or was a, a lot of, what you see as genius, uh, the genius of Jesus, pretty unprecedented for him yeah, or for that time. Well, I mean, I, I think the reality is that throughout history, there have been brilliant men and women who um, have nuances of how humans should actually live. And right. I think sometimes the, the challenge that Christians have is to be respectful of truth that comes outside of their particular narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so I'm like, uh, that Confucius had great insight doesn't diminish the genius of Jesus or that Buddha had right. tremendous insights doesn't diminish the truth of Jesus's teachings. And um, I, I think the, the, the singular difference would be, would be that Buddha would um, claim to have insight, but he had never claimed to be God. And Confucius claimed to have insight, but he never claimed to be God. And yeah. the, that, that the transferability of genius that Jesus offers us were not simply principles or insights to truth, but that he could actually change us, not just to do good, but to want good. Not only to uh, to choose the humble path, but to actually be transformed, become a humble person. And so that Jesus's genius is that he changes the essence of who we are so that out of the essence, the actions change. Confucius yeah. and Buddha and other great teachers um, tried to focus on our actions because it's all they could change. They were powerless to change our essence. And so they did their best to try to change our actions. Hmm. One, one thing I love that you stress over and over again in the book is this brilliance of asking questions. And I, I may be butchering the line slightly, but it was sometimes the best answer is the right question. Uh, which was in there, which I thought was, you mentioned that so many times that Jesus knew how to take an issue and just ask a question that just cut through everything. Um, have you always had this uh, fascinating, I mean, I feel like with your teachings, um, you've always had a interest in questions, but uh, is that, was that something that just kind of jumped off uh, in this book that you're like, that was one of the aspects of his genius that you like came loud and clear was this guy could ask questions that just, you know, ended or ended the discussions and debates or invited responses? Well, I mean, I think for me, it was one of the first things I ever noticed about Jesus. And because I came out of um, a Socratic tradition. And mm -hmm. so before I was a, a follower of Jesus, I would have said I was a Socratic. I was a follower of Socrates. And uh, I read everything Plato and Aristotle wrote. I, you know, I, I consumed the wisdom of, of Socrates in college. I actually wrote a paper on... Um, Socratic thought and economic development that got me admission into several different kind of prestigious schools. And, 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 and a lot of it was because I love the way Socrates always asks questions to keep pressing into truth. It's, it, he, he understood that if you tell someone um, the truth, uh, that you're trying to do something to them. But if you but if you extricate, pull the truth out of them, you're actually creating something happen within them. And I felt like a, a huge limitation in Christian preaching and communication and teaching was that we we're so um, didactic that we felt like we had to tell people what to do. We had to tell people what to think, to tell people what to believe. 
uh, and which made me feel like we didn't really believe in the Holy Spirit or trust the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, because the Bible says that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then, then why did we spend so much time trying to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment if we believe God's Spirit does that? And so to me, a huge part of what I learned from Jesus, I saw in Socrates, and I went, wow, Jesus uses the same approach toward truth as Socrates does. He believes that truth is intrinsic, that it's within a person. And if he asks the right questions, he can pull it out. And he can also bring light to the deception of you hiding from the truth or, or using the truth as a way to live in a lie. And, and that for me has uh, always been my approach toward everything I do. I don't, uh, my kids, they, I, I always drove them crazy because I wouldn't tell them what to do. I would yeah. just keep asking them questions until they uh, came to a sense of clarity of what they should do. And I said, look, if I give you the answers, I make you weaker. If I help you with the questions, I make you stronger. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, the book is The Genius of Jesus, and I'll show it to you one more time. Uh, it is available everywhere. I read it before this, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but then again, I've enjoyed most of uh, Irwin's books, so I'm a biased uh, party. But um, go go check it out for sure. Uh, last question, Irwin, for anyone who's, um, you know, and a lot of our listeners are, are – uh, just seeking and quest asking great questions and trying to figure out the stuff. Uh, for someone considering trying on a little of the genius of Jesus, uh, do you have any words for uh, anything that stands out or anyone who just is, wants to take the plunge and maybe explore getting to know this profound thinker? Uh, well, first of all, I, I would say you just need to pick up the book or listen to the audio book. Um, because I, I wrote this book for people who are sincerely trying to figure out if there's any validity to who Jesus is and whether that that genius that Jesus expressed is valid and uh, and can be relevant to to your life. Um, but I, I just think that one of the things to remember is that um, people who love God and love Jesus or believe in God, and believe in Jesus, um, if they create for you obstacles toward your faith, just realize that they were just imperfect people who found Jesus faster than you. And uh, and if you become a person of faith, your imperfection might get in the way of someone else's. And, um, you, you know, I don't believe in Jesus because um, there's anything better about me. I believe in Jesus because um, I had a life-changing encounter that I can't ignore. And, and what I really am grateful for is I, I kind of am grateful I didn't grow up in church. I, I, I was completely irreligious. I had no negative experiences with religion. Um, and, and so everyone I met that, that identified with Jesus was really kind and loving. Uh, I didn't meet a single hypocrite along the way. I just met super gracious, compassionate, um, well-meaning people. And then when I started asking him hard questions, they were ill-equipped for the questions. They just were not ready for the hard questions about suffering or life or in, injustice or, you know, of all the different path, pathways, you know, in the world to get, that are searching for God. And I, and I began to realize that, oh, they don't have all the answers. They just have found this beautiful relationship with God where um, grace and forgiveness it has an ebb and flow in their life. And so what I would say is just don't let people who are struggling confuse you. Um, they believe in Jesus because they're struggling. 
And, and the proof that you need God is that people who struggle um, are, are trying to get a hold of who God is. And Jesus came because he just refuses to give up on you. And it's kind of amazing if you think about it, that God who lives outside of time would step into time. The God who is spirit would take on flesh and blood. Uh, the God that is the source of all life would choose to die. And, and all these are the beautiful ironies of a story that only God could write. Yeah, so I just would just want to encourage anyone who's searching for God or trying to make sense of life or trying to figure out who Jesus is uh, to realize that um, every human being on this planet is trying to make sense of life and that all of us are trying to figure out why we're here and if our lives have any meaning or significance or purpose. And, and the reason I've just encouraged you to dive a little more deeply into who Jesus is, is that when Jesus came to this world, he didn't really just come to show us who God was. He came to show us who we could become. And that it's in this beautiful intersection of connecting to Jesus that not only do you connect to the God who created you, but you finally connect to the source that knows your full potential, your full capacity, your full humanity. And that's why for me, I feel so passionate about this. I really believe in humanity. And um, I think human beings are a work of art. And somewhere along the way, we lost our humanity and, and our history is written with poverty and injustice and violence and war. And what Jesus came to do is reestablish the human narrative so that our story could be a story of, of compassion and kindness and love and forgiveness and hope and joy and life. And I think that every time a person connects to Jesus, we start writing a new story to the human future. Well said. Well said. Well, folks. This has been Kind of Christian. Erwin McManus has joined us. Thank you so much, Erwin, for doing this. I really enjoyed your book. I enjoyed all your books, but I appreciate uh, the role you play, the great questions you ask, the, the raw transparency. And it's great to hear uh, some encouragement and faith in humanity. Obviously, there's a lot of negative news and a lot of fear and anxiety out there. So I'm glad to have a little little daily dose of, uh, of optimism. So thank you for writing the book. And uh, it's gonna, I know it's going to bless a lot of people. And a lot of people are going to try out Jesus because of that. So thank you very much. Awesome. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much, folks. Make sure to subscribe and we'll talk to you later. Psych, this isn't an actual episode. I just wanted to announce to all of you that we have a brand new line of exquisite, life-changing, divinely inspired, very irreverent coffees. Of course, I'm speaking about Kinda Christian Coffee. Choose from incredible blends like the Frozen Chosen, the Hostile Pentecostal, the Charismaniac, or for that special someone you need to have one with, the DTR Roast. Define your relationship with great coffee today. The coffee's amazing. It's not the cheapest coffee in the world, but you know why? Because it's the best coffee. It's so good. We have beans from Guatemala and Mexico and Ethiopia, and it's awesome. And it supports the show. So get a bag. I mean, what else are you going to do? You need a good beverage while listening to me. I've been told that my voice can help put people to sleep and you shouldn't operate heavy machinery while listening to me. So insure against your own demise by ordering a bag of Kinda Christian coffee today. So head on over. It's in the show notes. 
go visit our store, buy some of that coffee. Thanks so much.